last year, something unexpected happened in the sporting world. I'm not sure if you are aware of it or not. But at the beginning of last season, there were odds of 5,000 to 1 that this team would win the championship. In fact, this team hasn't come close to winning since they got second place in 1929. And the year before last, they almost got demoted. I'm speaking, of course, about the English Premier League for you soccer fans. I am not one of them, but perhaps many of you are. Um, In the English Premier League, there's 20 teams every year, and the bottom three get demoted, and the top three of the second league get moved up. And almost every year, as you can imagine, the teams that spend the most money on their players, millions and millions of dollars, usually win. But last year was very different. And last year, enter in Leicester City. 5,000 to 1 odds. It was never supposed to happen particularly for a team that spends fractions of the dollars that the top teams spend. But the unexpected happened. And last year, they won the entire league. I'm not even a soccer fan, as I mentioned, but I took notice, and I wonder if you did too. Everybody loves an underdog. And when underdogs win people take notice. It's memorable. It's hard to forget. And because it was so rare, I think this and what this team did last year is going to be remembered for a long, long time because it probably won't happen again. And the same thing is true for stories in the Bible. God likes to work with odds that are against him. He loves nothing more than working with people that don't look like they're going to win, who have nothing to offer, and he loves to show himself. That's where he shows up. He shows his glory. He is always faithful to show up. And in fact, he encourages his people to look to him, to call out to him, to depend on him, and he'll show up. Because the storyline of the Bible is all about how God is redeeming a people for himself. The unlikely, the underdog. To restore them from their sin and going their own way and bring them back to him. This is our story as well. And in Judges, we see this so clearly. Because it's a cycle that we've seen over and over and over again. The first couple chapters is kind of this overview of here's what's going to happen throughout the whole book. And now we're into the specific judges. And guess what? We see the same cycle over and over and over again. The cycle of sin and salvation. And today's story is going to be the exact same. We're going to be in chapter 4 and 5 with Deborah and Barak. But I hope the repetition doesn't get lost on us. I hope that you will take notice that the cycle can be broken and will be broken by God. What do I mean? Here's what happens. Israel forgets 
God and his faithfulness. Guess what? As a result, they're enslaved. We'll see this both spiritually but also physically all throughout the book of Judges. Then they cry out to the Lord, and God raises up a judge or a deliverer. Israel is then delivered, and the land has rest. Our story today about Deborah and Barak is actually the pinnacle of the book. We're in chapter 4. That's not good. There's 20-something chapters. So I apologize for all those who have to preach after me, but I got the pinnacle. Four chilling. But the remainder of the book is a downward spiral, as Matt has already uh, preached about, of sin and turning towards themselves and away from God and towards others. And it shows the repercussions of godlessness. And we're going to see that vividly today as well in these first few verses. In these two chapters, we're going to see the story of Deborah and Barak and how God delivers. But fortunately, we get two chapters. They're told in different styles. And so we're going to look primarily at chapter 4, but chapter 4 and 5 are the same story. Chapter 4 is kind of the narrative. It just gives the events. It says what happens. And then chapter 5 is more of the poetry or specifically a song of Deborah and Barak, of them singing and, and, experiencing and, and talking about their experience and their emotion of living through these events. It's kind of like, sorry again for another sports analogy, but color commentating. You've got the play-by-play guy and you've got the color commentary. The play-by-play just tells you what happens, and that's chapter 4. And then you've got the color commentary guy who will bring some commentary into it, some, some color to it, and that's what chapter 5 does. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk mainly about chapter 4, but we're going to add some commentary from chapter 5 where it's helpful. And if you haven't already, I would encourage you to spend some time in these two chapters, whether that's today or this week, meditating on God's faithfulness. I think it will encourage your soul. But our time today, here's what we're going to look at. The main thread of the story that we want to focus on is expecting the unexpected. And we're going to do this in three steps. First, what Israel should expect. Second, God does the unexpected. And third, what do we expect? If you've already found Judges 4, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? Judges 4, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly. For 20 years. This is God's word. You may be seated. So our first step, what Israel should expect. We enter here into Israel's plague. The cycle of turning from God and turning to themselves. Tur- turning away from the faithful God who has delivered them time and time again 
and turning to themselves and the gods around them. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. There are two expectations that Israel has or should have as a result of turning away. First is spiritual bondage, and second is physical bondage. These are the consequences of sin and forgetting God, not being faithful to the one who saved them out of Egypt and slavery. First, physical bondage. Chapter 5, verse 6, talks about the context that, that Deborah and Barak are living in. It says, the highways were abandoned. And the travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. And then skip on down. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. There's social unrest. There's no safety. You can't leave your house. You can't go on the main roads. There's no freedom. And there's literally nothing but fear. I wonder how we would feel under that context. The second part of physical bondage is oppression. We see here that it's at the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And while we hear very little about him, we can imagine, based on his military commander, Sisera, what he has at his fingertips, all the king's resources available to him. And the people had to do whatever he said. He was a cruel commander. This was the result of Israel turning away from God and choosing their sin. And we learn here that they were oppressed for 20 years. I wonder if we've been through anything for 20 years, much less oppression for 20 years. Maybe you have. But I think for most of us, I think we would have to meditate long and hard on what that would feel like and how we would respond in that situation. What's the mindset of the people who have to deal with this? I bet they're beat down. I bet they have no energy. And the most important thing, they probably have no hope. You can never imagine things being any any different. It's 20 years. It's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. And that's what Israel expected. The second piece, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Said another way, they decided to do what was ever right in their own eyes. This is the spiritual bondage piece. I think when you think about sin, I think there's two aspects of it. I think there's the slavery of it. And I think there's the staleness of it. The cycle of sin is doing the same thing over and over again. Doing the same thing, thinking you're going to get different results. It becomes a routine. It becomes the norm. And so already in these first three verses, we see that Israel needs salvation. They needed both a physical deliverance from Jabin and Sisera, but also a spiritual deliverance from their bondage to sin. And we see how easy it would be for these people who have no hope to ask themselves, what are our options? We have nothing left. 
And you know what? That's where God meets people. God shows up when desperate people cry out. What do the people do? They cried out to God. And you know what? He showed up. He responds. One of the best phrases, and I'll use it several times this morning, that one of the commentators mentioned was, omnipotence delights in encores. God delights in encores. Why does he show up when the people keep turning away? He shows up because he loves to display his glory. He loves another opportunity for people who have nothing to cry out to him and for him to save them. God shows up. He's done it before. He's delivered them in the days of Ehud. And he will do it again in this story. That's the first thing. What Israel should expect. The second thing. God does the unexpected. This is most of the story. And we're going to break it up into four brief segments here to kind of get the scenes of the story. What happens And it is told very briefly here, and like I said, chapter 5 gives us a little bit of commentary, but we're going to look at the four steps. First, verses 4 through 10, the call of Deborah and Barak. Then we'll look at 11 through 16, the defeat of Sisera's forces. And then third, the slaying of Sisera, and fourth, the arrival of Barak. God shows up and does the unexpected in every single one of these segments of the story. First, God works in an unexpected way when he calls a female judge. Here's Deborah. She's a prophetess, we're told. Basically a spokesperson for God. And she's a woman. To this audience, that would be very rare. Though she's not alone in in the Bible, other women have done big things for God, this would stand out. Because most of the major roles in society and in the people of Israel were filled by men. And so right off the bat, we get smacked with, God is doing something because he calls, calls Deborah. Now, in our story today, Deborah won't be the only woman that we talk about. And today, we're going to notice that women fill one of the biggest roles here in our story. And this, obviously, would have been very unexpected. But what is Deborah doing? She's actually helping run the nation. She's given direction in this dire time. We're told she's in the hill country. She's sitting under a palm named for herself. And the people come to her. They're looking for a word. They're looking for wisdom. They're looking for options. What are we supposed to do? And she gives them wisdom. And guidance because she speaks for God. And Deborah, in the context of all the other judges, is perhaps the most godly of them all. We're not told of any of her downsides, weaknesses, or pitfalls. And in fact, she describes herself in verse 7 of chapter 5, 5 as rising up as a mother in Israel. Clearly, she's a provider, she's a protector, she's a pro- positive influence. 
in the nation. And yet, what's clear about this is that she's not going to be the deliverer. This battle is with an army of Sisera. And there has to be a military leader that comes and fights the battle. Obviously, God fights for himself, but God also calls people, including Deborah. And so the second piece here that we see is that Deborah calls Barak. God speaks to Deborah and says, go get Barak. He's my military guy. So she sent, summoned him, because the Lord said it was time. And Barak will serve God in this role. So in order for the impression to end, Jabin and Sisera must be defeated on the battlefield. And Barak will lead 10,000, we're told, troops into battle. Now, if you, if you read this too quickly, you'll skip over the nuance of this. But I think it's important for us to see what they're trying, the author's trying to say. First, God raises up Deborah who calls on Barak and the people of Israel to fight, 10,000 in total, to go up against this enemy of the Lord and the ones who've been oppressing them for 20 years, Jabin, Sisera, the Canaanites. The question is, what should they expect? This is a motley crew of 10,000 people that have no history of fighting battles and knowing how to do that against a professional army and all of these resources and these chariots and everything else that they have at their the commission. I would see this as a guarantee for defeat if I'm sitting there. Obviously, my analytical mind would start to rationalize, we shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea. And I promise you, if you polled 100 military leaders of the day, not a single one of them would give Israel a chance for victory. That's what Brock's thinking. And so his response here can be seen in one of two ways. The commentators talk about a more critical response and a more gracious one. But let's state the facts. What does he do? He hesitates. Brock says, if you go with me, Deborah, I will go. If you will not, I will not go. So the critical response is that he doesn't respond in faith. His hesitation clearly won't stop God from delivering his people. But this is not a good example of a person acting in faith. It doesn't make Barak look good. Now the gracious response is that he knows if the Lord doesn't go with them, they won't win. So he defers to Deborah as the spokesperson for God. Is God really in this? If he is, we shall go and we will have victory. And it seems that he defers to Deborah because he wants to affirm that God is behind it. Barak is, after all, in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, right? But either way, Deborah's response is that she will go with him and that they will defeat Jabin and Sisera, but the glory will go to a woman. And at first glance, you believe this glory will go to Deborah, 
but we should continue with the story. Briefly, we need to see how unexpected it is that 10,000 troops would be called and respond as well. Chapter 5 gives this a lot of attention, actually, because it both celebrates and condemns the people of Israel and their response. Here here is what chapter 5 says, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. And while many responded and served in the army, there were some who didn't. Worst of all was apparently the people in Meraz. Verse 23, curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to help to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So we see in this first section, Deborah, Barak, and the Israelites, all are unexpected. And these are all people that God are going to use to accomplish his victory. Now we move to Sisera's army. It's on. Sisera sees that Barak and his forces are moving, and so they get ready to, to pounce. You can imagine that he's just licking his lips. We've got 900 chariots. We are guaranteed victory here. If you think about where they are geographically, the river Kishon is basically a flat, low-lying land, and then Mount Tabor is just this little plateau. And this is where the Israelites are, and here's where all the chariots and all Sisera's armies are. And if you think about this, they're both jockeying for position, and Sisera's thinking, I got this. No, no problem. Think about it like the U.S. military against any other military in the world. I think we spend $600 billion a year. And take Iraq, $21 billion. That's the difference here. Cicero has this professionally trained military. Soldiers that we can't even count and complete control. And he also has the chariots. And yet, you know what? Cicero doesn't know is that God is with the Israelites. And he is guaranteeing Israel's success. So what does Deborah do? Deborah says, get up, go. She sounds the trumpet. She says, the Lord will deliver Sisera into your hand. And it's like the Lord spoke and it happened. It was accomplished. Today ends 20 years of oppression. Think about that. What would you feel if you knew today was the day of deliverance? Imagine how high the emotions must have been running. And so the 10,000 charge, they go down, and the Lord, it says, routed Sisera and his chariots, and Sisera fled. There's no opposition left standing. God has delivered upon his promise. God has given victory. He's overcome this oppression. Now, we don't get much of the details here of this part of the story. But if you go to chapter 5, it tells you more of what happened. Starting in verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens trembled. Dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Move on down to verse 20. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. 
the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. There was a storm, a flood, that flooded the river and made the chariots worthless. And God, with his 10,000 people, with Barak, in all of his hesitation, and Deborah, delivered Israel from their oppression. The underdog had won. The odds had been overcome. And victory for Israel was by the hand of the Lord. Now, what about Sisera? He got away. It begins with a strange reference in verse 11 to Heber, the Kenite, and how they moved from the rest of the Kenites to be nomads and tent dwellers. Basically, the detail here is that it'd be like moving from Tennessee to New York. And the reason we're getting that tidbit of information we're about to find out, obviously, but is because God is screaming at us saying, I'm here, I'm involved, this is all part of my providence. These Kenites have established treaties and alliances with all the neighbors, including Israel and including the Canaanites. So you would think they're neutral in this affair. And again, the building suspense of what God is going to do and how the providence of God is going to work out His plan of salvation, even in the most minute of details, is what God is after here. Because after the battle, look at verse 17, Sisera gets away. He goes to their ally, to Heber. Or better yet, the wife of Heber, Jael. You better watch Jael. She's dangerous, apparently. But we see the unexpected work of God. Because when he flees, he thinks he's getting a reprieve by entering this tent. She's going to feed him, give him something to drink, give him rest, and give him protection from Barak. Because he says, if somebody comes and asks for me, say I'm not here. Nobody's present. And we see the fulfillment of God's glory and his victory, not being given to Barak, but to Jael. Because she, without hesitation, without hesitation, puts an end to Sisera with a tent peg. With a tent peg. Right through the temple. And he's gone. And the enemy of Israel is dead. The Lord accomplished exactly what he said he would do. The glory of God would not be given to another. He makes it clear that the victory that was accomplished that day and the salvation of Israel was his doing through Jael. The Lord does sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, Jael. And lastly, Barak comes and enters the scene again. And we see ultimately that the story's not about Barak either. He arrives and already finds the fulfillment of God's promise. And you know what? It had nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with him. So lest anyone think differently, the Lord himself provides 
a stunning victory and a smashing salvation. The Lord Himself does it. So in verse 23 and 24 of chapter 4, we read, So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So what do we do with this story? Seems all well and good. We get to our third point. What do we expect? I wonder, friends, if you expect the unexpected. Perhaps you can relate to the apathy of the Israelites. Fortunately, Deborah and Barak and the judges are not the final word on the cycle of sin. Because while they had peace in the land, guess what? The cycle continued. But remember, friends, omnipotence delights in encores. The most beautiful encore that we've ever seen of God's display of power and salvation was seen at the cross. All of the Old Testament, including all of Judges, points to the need for salvation. Not done at our own hands. We can't do it ourselves. But to provide an ultimate salvation, God would have to do it. It comes from Himself. And so God came. He entered in to humanity. He took on flesh, just like you and I. He took on all the messiness of this world all the stuff that we have to deal with. And yet, he was without sin. And through all of it, he kept his focus on the mission to die the death that all of us sinners deserve. To save those who would humble themselves by crying out to him. Not By saving ourselves, but acknowledging our sin and casting ourselves solely on His kindness and His justice. The unexpected mission of Jesus was not to display His power in a kingdom on earth. He didn't do that. In fact, if that's what you were looking for, He disappointed. But He came with sacrifice and service and death for you. Are you desperate enough to cry out to Him and cling to nothing but Him? Jesus was God delighting in encores. He's always been at work in unexpected ways all throughout history. He brings about his plan of salvation through unexpected people. We've seen that today. I think we see it if we're honest with ourselves in our own lives. And God will continue to work for all of those who are desperate enough to cry out to him. That's why Jesus came. He satisfied God's justice and he justified those willing to to cry out to Him and who have faith in Jesus. 
Jesus and the cross is the pinnacle of expecting the unexpected. And friends, our job is to to delight in Jesus. Delight in the things that God delights in. And we should delight in Him. The second thing I want to leave us with is to address all of us here in this room if you're dealing with pain and suffering this morning. I know many of you are. And it's hard to see friends go through hard things in life. And unfortunately, the Christian life isn't about a guarantee of safety or security or that we would not have worries. We're actually promised the opposite, that those who would follow after Christ will get much of the response that he did, and that is suffering. And so we're to prepare for that. And yet, you know, the interesting thing about suffering is that we're the most likely to forget the faithfulness of God in it. Just like the Israelites. And so I want to encourage us all to remember that God delivers and He preserves you in your pain and your suffering. And He does it in very unexpected ways. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9 says... For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He meets us, friends, in our pain just as much as He meets us in our joy. Do not lose heart. And please don't turn to idols. Don't turn away from the God who is faithful to deliver upon His promises. Turn to God. He alone can ease your pain or sustain you through it. He promises to work in unexpected ways through weak and vulnerable people. Cry out to Him. One of the ways that we can encourage each other is to actually share stories of God's faithfulness in the midst of trial. That's what the whole Old Testament is. That's what all of Judges is. It's a a backdrop of God displaying His glory and being faithful and providing salvation. We've seen that in the cross of Jesus as well. And friends, it's in our lives, each one of us, is a backdrop for God displaying His glory and faithfulness in the midst of trials. I wonder how many of you have seen God work in unexpected ways. I want to challenge each of us this week, either at lunch today or maybe at small group, maybe grab a cup of coffee. If you would consider sharing with somebody a story of how God has worked in your life in unexpected ways. That may be just the encouragement your friends need. We all need this. And may God use these stories to help us to continue to walk in faith and not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, 
it is evident that you are powerful and strong because you created everything that is and you sustain it. Every breath that we take and every day that you give us is held up by your hand. And Father, we've also experienced through Jesus a smashing salvation, one that's secure and guaranteed and has been accomplished once for all in his life and death and resurrection. I pray, Lord, that on the backdrop of all of our lives that we would see your faithfulness and rejoice in it. That we would rejoice in the fact that you work through encores. You love showing up and displaying your glory. Would you encourage us this week, even in the midst of all the stuff around us that's out of our control, we know that you are for us and will deliver us once for all, one day. Give us hope and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.